And so I want to draw your attention to it. We'll be in Mark chapter 14. We're going to read the majority of the chapter today. We're going to read about 52 verses of this chapter, and which is one of the longest chapters, is the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to hopefully do two different things. The first is I want to simply spend our time together and, and offer up something that will stand as just one more step in the long line of steps we've taken as our journey has taken us through the Gospel according to to Mark. But I also want to do something else that hopefully will stand alone and maybe will be something we can reference back as we celebrate today and as we talk about today the origins in Scripture of this thing that we celebrate called the Lord's Supper. You'll hear it called maybe the Eucharist or communion. You'll hear us call all of these things interchangeably. And the Bible even uses different terms to describe this thing. But not only do we want to simply see how this fits into this journey that Mark is telling us concerning the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, but Maybe this will actually stand as hopefully kind of a, a didactic little piece that will, that will expose what it is that we believe when we practice this thing called the Lord's Supper. So if you're here this morning and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't really call yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. This is a really good morning for you to be here because I want to walk through some of the symbols and, and practices and traditions that we hold dear, but more than just to simply explain what they are and how we do them, I want to explain what they mean. And maybe demonstrate for you that the good news that we gather around on a regular basis, the good news that shapes us and the good news that sends us into our city is the good news that's symbolized in the Lord's Supper. So I want to read to you beginning in Mark 14, verse 1, and we'll read about 50 verses. As usual, when we read a large chunk of Scripture like this, this takes about five to six minutes to read. And so if you find yourself kind of zoning out, maybe spacing out, staring out, out the window, no judgment or condemnation on you. It's a long stretch of text, but there's two things. We want to always be stretching our attention span for the Bible. We want to always stretch our own imagination and stretch our own level of focus and stretch our ability to take in the Bible. But if you find yourself dozing off or drifting off, then pay very close attention to the thing that draws your focus back here. And I think you might see that even though you made days off, it's okay. It's a lot to, to take in. Pay very close attention. God might be showing you something by the thing that draws your attention back into the text. So beginning in verse 1, after Jesus has given a long and arduous prophecy about the temple that will be destroyed and the persecution that will be endured, both now and in the days to come, Jesus begins to teach us and demonstrate for us something about himself and the way that people respond to him, beginning in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he, that is Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, that is Jesus, to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better that that man, for that man if he had not been born. In verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he 
fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you, not, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again and went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinner. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. And you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The imminent theme of this entire chapter is the abandonment of Jesus by the people who are the closest to him. People betraying Jesus. People making lofty promises to Jesus and ultimately abandoning him and leaving him. Leaving him as quickly and as urgently and as desperately as they possibly could. And the place I want to land before we're done today, and what I want you to see throughout this passage is a very simple, yet I hope powerful good news for you in spite of the abandonment of Jesus. Namely, that Jesus lays down His life for those who will betray and abandon Him. Jesus is willing to lay down His own life for the people that He knows turn on him and run away from him. You see, there's, see, it seems to be kind of three big movements throughout this particular passage. There's words of a feast, there seem to be words about a cup, and then there seem to be words about a sword. There seem to be three big movements, but 
There's also these tiny little stories that are, as we've talked about over the course of our time in Mark, sandwiched together as Mark tends to do. A literary effect in which he has a way of kind of telling a story but interjecting a little bit of a, his own little feedback or his own little thoughts or another little anecdote or another piece of the story to show you the deep meaning of what's really going on. Contrasting one and the other. And so as we kind of walk through this passage, I want you to see and maybe build up to what I think is the crescendo that Jesus ultimately is doing something for these people, knowing full well that he will be betrayed by them and abandoned by them. The first thing I think you see in the context of the feast is that true followers of Jesus will not hesitate to worship Jesus with great love and great sacrifice. So let's begin. The, the, very, the very first uh, passage or the very first verse that Mark tells us in this chunk of scripture is that they're two days away from Passover and they're in the middle of the feast of unleavened bread. Um, quick side note, this is important over the course of scripture. These are, these are periods of time that are often confused for one another. The Passover can be referred to as a one night event, an event that lasts 24 hours, but it also sometimes is referred to as a week, that is Passover being a week of time. And then the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is actually a kind of a long weekend celebration that fits into the week of Passover, but kind of encapsulates the day of Passover. So you've got this great feast coming up, and it's really difficult to give a, a, a parallel for our own current culture. But just for the sake of argument, just imagine the most noteworthy annual thing in your entire life. Right? For some of you, that's, like a, that, that's the 4th of July. For some of you, that's Christmas but, but pick that annual event in your own life that your family will drop what they're doing, if possible, and get together. Now, this is difficult because our culture isn't necessarily conducive to this kind of a practice. But pick, if you will, in your mind, the greatest annual event, and this is what these people are preparing to celebrate. There's a feast, and they're celebrating something annually that commemorates, commemorates something that's deeply rooted in their history. The same way that probably whatever you do annually is a tradition that commemorates something significant to you and to the people whom you love. There's a feast, you see. A feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened meaning bread without yeast. That is bread that doesn't have the time or chemical ability to rise and become fluffy, but instead stays compact. You see, this is a picture of this feast of something that these people would have celebrated that goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus being the story of how God delivered his people from bondage under Pharaoh in Egypt. They were enslaved and they were oppressed. And Egypt and a series of plagues are sent by God through this messenger Moses to set these people free and to loosen Pharaoh's oppressive grip. And he brings this sword, this wrath, this divine justice upon the people who are enemies and oppressive toward God's people. And justice comes. And when justice comes, it sets in motion an amazing event, an event that these people will commemorate over and over and over again. This feast that they commemorate, celebrated as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, started with the preparation of removing all of the yeast so yeast is kind of this, this thing, that an activator, a chemical activator for those of you who are bakers that causes, that causes bread and flour and a mixture to react in a certain way and have a, a gaseous kind of chemical reaction that causes bread to fill up with air and makes it that buttery, flaky, 
goodness that makes carbs so awesome. My forgiveness to all of you who gluten is not on your, on your palate. I apologize, but this is, this is a beautiful thing that God gives us, and yet this commemorates a, a type of celebration for a type of bread that symbolizes something, a type of thing that God has done for them. Namely, in this very first feast known as the Passover. You see, when these people were in bondage, a series of plagues came over Egyptians from the Pharaoh all the way to the lowest that were oppressing God's people. Plagues that were intended to undermine and destroy the gods, the idols of the Egyptians. Up till the final plague, which was a plague that came to kill the firstborn son. A plague of wrath. A plague of divine justice. Now stop there. I have to always kind of, I think, maybe craft the ways in which we talk about the wrath of God and how we can say that God is love and yet God is full of wrath and justice. And so I would argue in our culture we've kind of created a, a, type, of, a type of setting in which you probably sense this, that like, we don't like to talk about God being angry. Right? We don't, that, that just doesn't feel good to us. Um, that, that just isn't, isn't good for our sensibilities. And in a, in a culture that tells you that what you feel is, is what reality is, that, that's a difficult thing for us to swallow. So I just want to stop this for a moment and just explain to you why this divine justice and divine wrath is coming upon the enemies of God. And it's very simple. You have it in your own heart. You see, loving something, I think, demands wrath. Loving something demands fury. I love my daughters. They're adorable. They're beautiful to me. They carry a, about themselves a, an innocence that I want to protect. And, and I love them. I love them dearly. And I love you, my friends, that God has put into my life. But if one of you is to harm one of my daughters, well, then the only loving thing to do is to respond toward you in fury and in anger. In fact, I would argue, if you find yourself having a difficulty picturing the wrath of God being commensurate and consistent with the love of God, then you've, dis you've detached yourself from your own emotion. You've detached yourself from your own experience of love. After all, if something bad were to happen by someone else's hand to one of my daughters, and I just went like, meh, oh well, then I am not a good and loving father. I am an apathetic and deadbeat father. In fact, in that moment when something harmful comes before my daughters, it is because of my love that I, inter that I intervene. It is because of my love that I will do whatever I can to stop you or anyone else from harming them. And I will go to great lengths that may seem violent and unnecessary, but they're not because I have hate toward you. They're because I have love toward them. And the same thing is true for you and for me. When that which we love is in jeopardy, when that which we love is in danger, then we begin to understand what it means to have wrath and fury and anger. So make no mistake about it, God in his wrath over the enemies of God's people, namely Pharaoh and the Egyptians and all of those people that oppressed God's people, is not something to be afraid of. It's something to be loved about God. That even due to their own disobedience, the people who set out to oppress God's people become the enemies of God. God, in a very powerful way, identifies with those of us who are oppressed, and He fights their enemies. So divine justice comes in the form of the final, the final plague for these people, the Israelites, who were oppressed and in slavery. Divine justice was coming. Someone was going to die under the wrath of God's justice. 
And the only way for the families of God's people to escape this divine justice was to put their trust into God's sacrificial provision. So God told Moses to tell the people that they were to take a a blemishless, a, a, a young lamb, and they were to slaughter this lamb. And they were to take the blood of this lamb that was slaughtered, and they were to take this blood, and they were to smear it across their doorposts so that it would be a marker for the angel of death that as he passed through the people to destroy and take the life of the firstborn son, they would pass over God's chosen people who were under the mark of the blood of the blemishless lamb. So as the angel of death death passed through to exact divine justice that they deserved, the mark of the blood of the lamb over these people's homes marked that they were under God's substitutionary sacrifice such that the angel of death passed not through the home to destroy the firstborn, but to pass over the home and deliver them. And on the very night that the angel of death passed through, there would either be a dead child in the home or there would be a dead lamb in the home. For when God's justice fell, it would either fall on your family or you would take shelter under God's substitute. You were saved and passed over on the basis of God's substitutionary sacrifice. Now I know what you're thinking. That's a terribly morbid thing to do, is it not? To take the blood of a lamb and instead of disposing of it, to take it and then to, to mark it, to mark over your door. I mean, I don't know how much you protect your own home, but that would be a strange thing to kind of put over your house. Right? We're, we're in the realm of like creepy horror stories, aren't we? There's blood on the door. It's like a, like a crime scene that you would see. But make no mistake about it, the blood would be shed, the life would be lost, and it would either be the life of the firstborn son in the family or it would be the life of the lamb. It happened the night before. So whoever presided over this kind of a celebration would be commemorating what God had done to deliver his people. You see, right after the firstborn son was killed from top to bottom, from Pharaoh's own son all the way to the lowest of lows in the kingdom of Egypt, the very next day, Pharaoh's hardened heart was finally broken. And the justice of God finally crushed and destroyed the heart of Pharaoh to the point where Pharaoh, the enemy who had set himself out to oppress God's people, was crushed and he set God's people free. And then one night, there was the shedding of blood for salvation. And the next day, there was freedom for God's people. So when every year the time came for people to commemorate this thing, they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why did they do that? Because there was a special and specific way in which the people celebrated the Passover. Namely, that they were to take the bread, and because they were in a hurry, they didn't know this, but because God was about to set them free by what he was doing, he said, you're going to eat this meal, and you're going to eat it, some of them standing up, you're going to eat it with your belt on. You're going to eat it like ready to run, ready at any any given moment to bolt. And so therefore, don't take the time to put yeast in the bread and cause it to rise and be fluffy and delicious as I would like, but, but instead, you're in a hurry, you don't have time for that. Take the calories like you can get them, make this thing as quickly as you possibly can, and then eat them. 
And then there was a lamb that was slaughtered, whose blood was posted over the door, that they would eat, and they would roast and cook, but they would also eat it quickly, and they would eat it with bitter herbs. Bitter herbs, something that we would maybe consider like, like a sauerkraut, or, or for some of you, like horseradish, a, a bitter kind of a native root that would cause the, the meat to taste very bitter as a reminder, a symbolic reminder of the bitterness of slavery from which they were delivered. And so they would have both the lamb to eat, but also the bitter herbs with it. And they would celebrate this over and over and over again. And this, like you, is the grandest and most important celebration every year for these people. They would get together with their family to the point where you catch, the, you catch what the, the disciples say. They go, hey, Jesus, where are we going to celebrate the, this, this Passover? Where are we going to do this annual thing that's really important? And so they got together and began to prepare. And on the eve of this grand and mighty celebration, we find Jesus in verse 3. In Bethany, the house of Simon the leper. It doesn't tell us why Simon the leper is or is not afflicted with leprosy anymore. We're meant to, I think, assume by Mark that Jesus had healed him. But whatever the case is, you get this motif of outsiders. Whatever the case may be, we know that lepers, were. this was an uncurable kind of uh, skin disease that rotted out the flesh. And Jesus was here hanging out with the outcasts in Bethany, hanging out at the table, and a woman comes in and she does something amazing. She breaks open a flask, a flask of very expensive ointment. Some of you will see different words to translate this kind of oil or anointing perfume. And he pours it on his head. The Gospel of John tells us that this woman ends up being Mary. Now, for the purpose of this story, it doesn't really matter her name, but John thinks it does. For Mark, it simply is a foil. It's meant to be a baseline for our understanding of the rest of the chapter. This woman, a nameless woman, similar to the other nameless woman, remember the other nameless woman who shamed the rich and wealthy people who came into the synagogue and in the temple and gave proportionally out of their wealth, and she walks up and gives everything she possibly has, teaching us that it is not necessarily how much that we give, but instead is the heart of the giver that reveals the kind of generosity God means to stir up in us. So also the same thing is here. The gift reveals value. She pours open this and she, she breaks it up. And I don't know if you caught this, the people around her begin to scold her and say, this, this costs a great deal of money. This, this thing is, is expensive. She broke up on an alabaster jar. The, the picture of breaking it is a, also a hard metaphor for us to grasp um, because we kind of live in a world of disposable containers, right? You have to kind of go back in time to a place where disposable containers is not a thing. Right? If you held something in a thing, that thing you wanted to save so you could put more stuff in it later. Right? We, we live in a, in a world where the closest we can get is when you like open a wrapper of a candy bar. What's that candy bar wrapper good for? After you eat its contents, then that candy bar wrapper is useless. It serves no purpose. And so the same thing here is meant to be a metaphor for the way in which this woman did not kind of just sort of use this ointment. An ointment that would have to have been a, a family heirloom for someone of this status to have even owned. But she breaks it open and pours it out. Just stop for a minute. Catch that metaphor. Ever seen a woman put on perfume? Right, now this is a lesson for some of you guys. Um, this is important. Guys do this typically very poorly. Um, I remember my own roommate in college had this technique where he would just like take the cologne and spray it up in the air and then do this, and I'm, I'm going to mimic him. This is not me, this is him. 
Um, this is a pretty manly dude who would do this, but he would do this. He would go like that. <laughs> and he'd have this e- and by, <laughs> that's, I felt awful doing that. So he'd have this like even coat of cologne all over like the top layer of his body. So then when he walked in the room, I mean, it smelled good, but you're like, okay, whoa, hang on. Right? That's how guys do this. Okay? But not women. You ever seen a woman put on expensive perfume? Right? Before the squirt bottle was invented, it was kind of just a little bit on finger, just it's, again, I feel weird doing this, but I love you, so I'm going to do it. But just kind of the dab, kind of, yeah, just, and then maybe take on the wrists and just rub. Because sometimes you smell a woman's wrist. I mean, I, I don't, she slaps you and you're like, that smells great. I mean, I don't, I don't really, I'm not, again, I don't, I'm just telling it like I see it. I don't know what that's for. At the very least, I'm trying to help you guys uh, take a lesson. Little dab will do you. A little bit goes a long way. Right, so, so you get this. This is how a woman would most likely use perfume, especially perfume. I mean, perfume costs like 50 to 100 bucks for like a few ounces, right? This says that it costs a year's wages. So Google the median income in whatever zip code in which you live, and that's the cost of this thing. And she doesn't come up and kind of dab it just a little on Jesus so that there's more left in reserve. She takes it and breaks the bottle and pours it over his head. John tells us in his gospel that she actually poured it on his feet. So that Jesus was completely covered in a year's worth of salary, worth of ointment. An extravagant gift. Like a gift that, I mean, would have, you would have smelled that gift powerfully for a time to come. And this gift, make no mistake about it, is scolded by others. You see, extravagant acts of love will be public, but they'll also be criticized. Don't miss this. If true followers of Jesus worship Jesus in great love and great sacrifice, prepare. Great acts of love are criticized. They look crazy. But Jesus tells us something amazing. She's done something that's truly memorable because great acts of love are also remembered. Jesus says, look, you're right. They could have given this to the poor, but listen to what she says. And this is, or what he says, this is an interesting thing for us to also think about as we think about how the gospel puts us on mission in a broken world. He says that you'll always have the poor with you, but me, you won't always have. Just, just get that for just a minute, all right? We as a church love social justice. We love because Jesus says, when I was naked, you, you, know, you, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me, right? And that is to say that when you do these things to anyone in the world, you're, it's as if you're serving Jesus in a very powerful way. And we take this very seriously because we think the gospel is on display when we show that kind of radical love and care for people around us who are oppressed. However, what Jesus says is very powerful. He is much more valuable than anything that is broken in this world. In fact, when we look to heal and help and serve, we are only doing so to gain leverage so that we can draw attention to Jesus. The way I say this to you on a regular basis, look, it is this relax, okay? You don't need to feel guilt about what is broken in the world. We are not called to be saviors of the world. We are called to tell everybody about the savior of the world. So relax. You don't have to save the world, okay? It's not your job to save the world. It's your job to tell everyone about the one who has saved the world. And Jesus is pointing to this, isn't he? Because what do people typically do? They use the poor, they use the oppressed to simply, I would argue, especially in a political cycle, promote their own agenda. 
And they use the poor as like a, as a pawn to promote what they think they ought to do. Did you catch this? They did the same thing. And instead of saying, I disagree with you pouring that perfume, what'd they do? They used the poor as a pawn. Well, you could have fed all the poor with that. You could have helped all the poor with that. Using them as a pawn to simply make an argument against this extravagant act of love. And Jesus says, that's not so. Because not only will extravagant acts of love be public, criticized, and remembered, look at what happens. She serves as a foil for the rest of the chapter. They will also, extravagant acts of love will also be contrasted with acts of betrayal and abandonment. This passage starts telling us about this extravagant love of this woman who anoints Jesus. And Jesus says, very, in a way of foreshadowing, for his own burial. He sees his death coming. But then after this story of her great love, and I love this because, I mean, in a sense, Jesus is right, and we get to prove him right here. It says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world. I hope that, above all else, we are the people who sing about, talk about, pray about, and preach about the gospel. And if we're that place, then how awesome is it that Jesus' prophecy comes through here? What, has, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And there's a sense in which over the last couple of minutes we've proved Jesus right. This extravagant act of love is what we talk about. And it serves as a foil because what happens next? In the context of a great celebration that commemorates the sacrificial and substitutionary love of God for His people, an extravagant act of love is set in place so that we will see how absolutely abhorrent the next few things are verse 10 then judas iscariot who was one of the 12 one of the closest of jesus it says he went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them when they heard it they were glad and they promised to give him money and so he sought an opportunity to betray him don't miss this as well. Money is a constant theme throughout all of the Gospels. Nobody talks about money or hell more than Jesus. The two things that make us the most uncomfortable seem to be kind of the common thing Jesus liked to talk about, right? And even in polite company where you don't talk about money or hell. This is what Jesus does on a regular basis. And this is what I will argue for you that Jesus kind of points out here. Money, quite literally, is just value. It, it ascribes value to something. It has neither good or bad moral qualities. It is intrinsically neutral. That's why later, the New Testament tells us that the love of money is the root of lots of evil. But money itself is neither good nor bad. It just reveals very black and white to the decimal point what you value. And it demonstrates what this woman, this unnamed woman, values. And it demonstrates what Judas values. Look at the contrast. On one hand, you have Mary, this unnamed woman for Mark. And she's a woman with no real standing. Whereas Jesus was a man who was one of the twelve, we see in verse 10. This woman gave what she could. Did you hear what she did what she could? Namely, kind of like this other woman who gave all that she had literally her whole life to the temple. This woman gave what she could. Whereas Judas took whatever he could, whatever he could get for Jesus. Mary blessed her Lord. Judas betrayed her Lord. Mary loved her Lord. And Judas used his Lord. Mary, this unnamed woman, did a beautiful thing. Judas does a detestable thing. 
Mary served him as her Savior. Judas sold him like he was his slave. So therefore, Mary is notable forever and ever. While Judas is notorious forever and ever. Thinking about naming your firstborn son Judas? I mean, there's lots of good names in the Bible, right? But we tend to stay away from names like, I don't know, naming your daughter Rahab, right? Or Jezebel. Know any girls named Jezebel? That'd be an interesting one. Certainly don't know any boys. I, I personally don't know any boys named Judas. Why? Because it, there's a notoriety affiliated with this guy's name for this very purpose. And he stands in stark contrast to the radical act of love. And on one hand, we see this radical act of love by this woman, and then right afterward, Mark tells us about a radical act of betrayal. You begin to see. You begin to see the wrath of God. You begin to see the justice that hopefully you begin to feel for these people. Because in this celebration, as they're preparing for it, not only does a radical act of love serve as a foil for the radical act of betrayal, but Jesus tells us the ultimate point that he means to get across for the sake of this passage. It looks like this. Jesus is both the suffering servant of the Lord and the sacrificial lamb of God who would ultimately die for the sins of the world according to the will of God. So then we start hearing about this Passover, this celebration. And just like when Jesus came into Jerusalem and sent a couple of people ahead to get a donkey that he could ride in as in the triumphal entry, so also it is the exact same thing, the same picture of God's foreordination, his foreknowledge is pictured here. Jesus goes, go do this thing, and just like you find it, just like I'm telling you, you will find it, and there will, all of the preparations will be made for us to celebrate the Passover. But in so doing, something happens. So remember what I told you about the feast that they were preparing for? Preparing their minds for? Preparing even some of the, the articles for? This, this kind of feast that commemorated the substitutionary sacrifice of God on behalf of his oppressed people is meant to be also the foil for what Jesus does with his disciples. You see, in this feast... Exodus 6, you can even look this up if you're, a, if you're a note taker, you can kind of, kind of run through this. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, there were four cups of wine that were celebrated and, and shared around the table during Passover. There were four of them. One, one represented the being rescued from Egypt. One represented the freedom that came from God from slavery. And the, the third was the redemption by God's divine power, redeeming people. And then the fourth was the renewed and consummated relationship with God. And it says that as Jesus presided over the meal, he probably did exactly what most people would have done. So remember that thing I asked you, the annual thing that you do every year? You get ready for it? Think about the symbols and the ways in which you commemorate its meaning. Jesus does the same thing. And for the people who would have celebrated the Passover, they would have said, this is the bread of the affliction. Notice, it has no yeast in it. Why? Because this is to remind us of the time that God saved us so radically that we didn't have time to cook it. This is the wine that, that represents this particular blessing, namely the freedom from slavery. This is the wine, the cup, that represents the rescue from Egypt. And, and Jesus does something. He flips the script on what have, would have been an, an annual occurrence, a meaningful symbol. And at a certain point, he stops, and instead of saying, this is the bread of the affliction, he says, this bread is my body. As if to say, this bread is no longer a symbol of the affliction of God's people. This bread is now a symbol of the affliction of God on me. He says he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he says the exact same thing in verse 24. Instead of saying, this is the cup 
of the redemption of God, he says, this is the cup of my blood, which is a new covenant, a new redemption, a new exodus. And then he stops. He doesn't go to the fourth cup. Presumably, Mark is kind of telling a story in which when he makes a vow, truly I tell you this very now, or excuse me, you know, truly I tell you this, this is, uh, I will not drink of, of this again, this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink new in the kingdom of God. This is a vow. We saw this in, in the book of Acts. Remember when the people were trying to kill Paul and they go, I will not drink or eat until I kill Paul. It was an oath. And Jesus makes the same oath as if to stop and say that we will not celebrate the consummation of God's kingdom until his kingdom is here and then I will drink it with you, and it will be a feast. And Jesus does something amazing. He points out that not only is God going to deliver like he has before, but he says that now he is the suffering servant. He is the fulfillment of this. And that, that gory and, and bloody thing that people had been practicing for a year that seemed kind of weird and, and kind, of, kind of graphic is meant to simply be a preview for the gory and bloody and graphic price that would be paid by Jesus paid by Jesus because of the betrayal of his own people. He suffers, but he's also the sacrificial lamb. Did you notice what was not there? I mean, I just told you about the feast that involved the lamb, right? And then the one thing that both Matthew, all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they tell us about when Jesus institutes the Passover and he institutes the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist for us, the one thing that none of the Gospels mentioned, did you notice it? There's no lamb. Now, some would say that there wasn't any lamb there at all. Some would argue that in that case, Jesus was the lamb. But whatever the case may be, none of the Gospels refer to this, and it's for a specific purpose, to remind them that the lamb that was to be slain, the blood of this lamb that would be a banner of salvation over God's people would be from Jesus himself. Jesus isn't just a great teacher. He is a suffering servant. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one who is willing to die according to the will of God to absorb the wrath and justice of God. And just like the Lamb in the Passover, the innocent and spotless Lamb died a bloody death for the sake of the children of Israel to live, so also Jesus takes the place. Because the last thing I think we see here is that Jesus is not just a sacrificial lamb. He is the righteous king who endures betrayal and shame for the sake of sinners. So here's where we land. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion together, the Lord's Supper. Um, you can follow me there if you want. Uh, but a regular occurrence for us is to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is kind of the later picture of what the Lord's Supper looked like for these Christians. I'm going to read to you what Paul tells this church. He says, look, I received from the Lord... Remember, this is what Jesus said, do this, remember me. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. In verse 23, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and as often as you drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death, that is the Lord Jesus' sacrifice, until he returns. Whoever therefore eats the bread of, or 
drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So therefore, let a person examine himself then so, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. For that is why many of you, he says, are weak and ill and some have even died. So when they come together, they're to eat and commemorate this meal and celebrate it. But make no mistake about this, and this is where I think the powerful Word of God lands on us the most compellingly. All of this takes place in the context as a foil for the betrayal and abandonment of Jesus. Hear the good news. Jesus knew how to set up for the meal. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen in the meal. Jesus presided over the meal. Jesus pointed to himself and his atoning work in the meal, that he would be the substitutionary sacrificial lamb for these people. And immediately following, did you catch this? You're all going to leave me. You're all going to betray me. Peter says, no, absolutely not. I'll die before I betray you. And the other people even had the same oath. So would you catch this just broadly and powerfully? In a minute here, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And someone is going to declare to you the gospel, and they're going to hand you, it's going to be silly, but it's a symbol of something amazing. They're going to hand you a piece of bread and say, this is the body of Christ which was broken for you. And speak that good news over your life. And they're going to say, look here, we're going to dip the bread into the cup. Therefore, drinking this juice, and someone will hold that juice and say, this is the blood of Christ, which was poured out for you. Speaking words of good news, maybe words that you've never heard. I want you to hear the majesty and weight of that good news. That good news and that sacrifice was for a bunch of people who Jesus knew would betray him. This celebration of the Lord's, of the Lord's Supper is not a celebration of merit on our part. It is a celebration of mercy on his part. Don't miss this. The enemy wants to deceive you and think that, that you are unworthy based on your merit and distract you from the fact that you are made worthy by his mercy. And in the same way that his blood covers these people and delivers them from bondage, so also it delivers us from sin and from death. And someone will speak a word of good news over you, but don't miss this. Hear the gospel in this. You are going to screw it up this week. Every last one of you. Did you catch the way he says this? I, I, I don't know, this is one of my favorite. This is the first account of streaking in the Bible. Did you get this verse 51? Some scholars believe that this was Mark telling a story about himself. John does this. John tells stories about himself in his own gospel, and he says the beloved disciple, not naming himself, but kind of implying that he was the youngest and beloved of Jesus' disciples. And, and, and Mark maybe we don't know if this is true, but Mark interjects this story. He may be telling about himself. He was a guy that apparently was sons out, guns out all the time. Did you catch that? He had a tendency to wear nothing but a linen cloth, right? And when the opportunity came, he would rather walk away naked than to stand by Jesus. As if to paint a picture for these people that every single last one of them abandoned Jesus. Every single last one of them. Jesus was willing to give up Jesus, uh, or Judas was willing to give up Jesus for some silver coins. 
Some of these were willing to give up Jesus to save their lives, and this guy was willing to give up Jesus for his own dignity, and he would rather run away naked. A picture of shame than to stand by Jesus. Verse 50 says, they all left him and fled, every last one of them. So here's what's creeping up in your own heart often when we talk about the love and mercy of God. I'm not good enough. There's no way he'll love me. There's no way he'll like me. I got to get this worked out. I got to get this cleaned up. In fact, right now, the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit brings about when I preach, for some of you right now, you're thinking, I got to do better this week. I'm going to do better this week. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do all the stuff that I'm supposed to do. And in so doing, you're focusing on yourself and you're focusing on your own merit and you're focusing on your own particular performance. And I want to argue to you, you just like the rest of these people, just like Peter, when you say, no way, I'll never screw up that way again, I'll never do that again, need to hear the words of Jesus. You're going to leave. You're going to abandon. And therein lies the good news. Jesus looks at you and he looks at me. Right now, some of you are calculating what it's going to take for you to bail. Some of you are about to go AWOL. We won't see you for a while. It happens. Some of you want to run. Get out of this. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about my sin. Stop talking about his holiness. Stop talking about repentance. And you want to run. Some of you are counting the cost right now. You, you, Jesus is cool so long as he's beneficial to you. But when somebody comes with the right price, he's gone. You don't believe me? This week, you're going to have opportunities to set aside time and energy toward living in his word and living according to his word, that it's a light to your feet and a lamp into your path, but something's going to offer a better price. And you're going to spend your time and energy doing something else. You're going to have the opportunity to bless instead of curse, but that price is going to be too high. Did you hear what he said to me? I've got to stand up for myself. I'm going to put him in his place. That price is too high for you. You're going to have the opportunity to serve, to lower yourself, to break what is precious and pour it over to magnify and glorify Jesus and that price will be too high to you. And you'll think to yourself, that money should have been spent somewhere else. That time should have been, should have been spent on something else. Hear the good news. Jesus looks at you and he looks at me and he sees our betraying hearts and he sees our shallow and superficial spirit and he looks right at you and he looks at me and he says, I will die for you anyway. This blood that is shed for you, this body that is broken for you is not based on you. It is based on my mercy. And I know you will fail. But friend, amidst that suffering, see the grace of God. In the same way he looked at these people who would betray him and bless them anyway, he looks at you and he looks at me and he offers words of good news. This is my body. You can have it. This is my blood. It's yours. Hear the words of good news. that Jesus Christ is not simply a king that lords his power over, but is, he is a king who lays down his life to save his people. Jesus, in the end, lays down his life, not for people that have it figured out, not for people that have their lives in order. Jesus lays down his life for the people that betray him and abandon him. Thank God. Thank God. Because when Jesus lays down his life for the people who abandon and betray him, he lays down his life for people like me. And I think maybe people like you. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you for your goodness. We thank you that 
there is nothing that has shocked you. There is nothing that has caught you off guard. There is nothing that has surprised you. Uh, Even in the most intimate of betrayals, someone betraying with a kiss, God, you're not shocked. You're not astounded. God, even in, in the most intimate of abandonment from people who swore they would not, you were not caught off guard. God, thank you that in that moment when you looked at the future betrayal that these people would bring, when you looked at my future sin and you looked at my future abandonment, that you were not afraid, but instead you came boldly. God, thank you that you did not simply avoid or suppress your desires, but you felt the full weight of this price that you were called to pay. Jesus, you did not try to just change the circumstances to avoid suffering, but instead you felt the full weight and then you embraced the suffering, the price that had to be paid for the people that would abandon and betray you. God, if there's someone in this room who has never heard this good news, may this be the day that they see the price that was paid and see that the gory and bloody sacrifice was meant to be them. That the wrath that we deserved from God above was meant for us, but instead was paid by the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. May that change everything for us. For those of us who maybe we need to repent of this, we've We've, we've sold you off. We've sold you off for the highest bidder. We've put everything of your kingdom as a second tier to the things that we desire and exalt. Would we in these moments begin to confess that as sin and repent that you, Lord, have forgiven us and you are the merciful king. You deserve the rightful place. You deserve the rightful and proper sacrificial extravagant act of love that this woman demonstrates for us. That we would pour out all that we have simply glorify and magnify you. Let us examine our hearts and in the places where we're tempted to look inside, we're tempted to find the solution inside our own sinful hearts, would you begin to distract us with the ever-present love of Jesus that we are declaring your death over us? Would our focus not be our sin, but would our focus be your sacrifice? would we be under the banner of the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ? We cry this out to you in Jesus' name. Amen.